Well, good morning, Park Community Church South Loop, those who are here in person, but also those who are watching online. Good to be with you all uh, today. So if we can turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, we're going to dig right in. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 uh, to 47. Uh, If you've been with us for a few weeks now, we have been going through the book of Acts, and we've titled our sermon series, The Gospel Movement. You know, last week, Pastor Kenson, he shared about uh, Acts 2 in Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell upon 120 followers of Christ, and it unleashed this gospel movement throughout Jerusalem and eventually throughout the ends of the earth. But it began there, and on that day, on Acts 2, verse 41, it said that 3,000 souls were added to the 120 followers. 3,000 souls. So as we go into our text, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see what happens next after they've just added 3,000 new followers of Christ. And so let me read Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And it reads, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. Let me pray. God, we come here today wanting to be students, disciples, um, and not just hearers, but obeyers of your word. And so, God, move in us, we pray. Just as the Holy Spirit came upon Pentecost, God, we know the Spirit is in this room. We know the Spirit is moving in our hearts and through our church. And so I pray that your Spirit may speak to us. May it not be my words, and if I say anything, may that be forgotten. And may your words stick and and dig deep into our hearts. uh, And may grow 30, 50, 100-fold as we go out from this place, God. We thank you so much. We love you, God. Be with us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, in the 2016 World Olympics, there was one name that took the games by storm, and it wasn't Michael Phelps. It was Simone Biles. At the age of 19, she won four gold medals, the first U.S. female gymnast to accomplish such a feat. And by 2019, she had won her 25th gold medal, the most by any gymnast in history. You know, Simone Biles has been recognized with multiple awards from ESPN, Time Magazine, and many have called her the most talented and possibly the greatest gymnast of all time. Yet, like many other Olympians, the true work, the true sacrifice and struggle happened behind the scenes. You know, many people might not know this, but Simone Biles' life started in Columbus, Ohio, When her mom struggled with addictions, Simone and her siblings were placed in foster care and eventually adopted by her grandparents. Eventually, at the age of six, she discovered gymnastics and started to excel, but it came with great sacrifices. She had to be homeschooled to train more. That would mean no prom, no after-school activities, no hanging out with classmates, and though tears came, she persevered. And as she began to succeed on the world stage as a young black woman, she stood out in a sport that had primarily been 
dominated by one culture and race. So some comments were made about her skin color and race, yet she remained devoted, and she still became the best and broke many cultural barriers in the sport of gymnastics. Then even after that success in 2016, injuries began to plague her. But she remained committed again and excelled in her future competitions, and she eventually broke records in 2019. Now, when we see this radical devotion of someone like Simone Biles, we can't help but be wowed by it, by be admired by it. Even outside of professional athletes, when we hear of individuals who are so devoted to their profession, to a social justice cause, or especially to the mission field, we are naturally drawn to that passion. We are wowed and by their sacrifice and their, demo- their devotion. Yet, what if we turn that question around and looked at our lives? What would people see you devoted to? Or what would it, what would it be if people looked in this church, at Park Community Church South Loop? What would they see us devoted to? When we go back to our passage in Luke, the writer of Acts, he gives us this snapshot of how the early church fulfilled the gospel mission from Acts 1.8. And the common theme that runs through this snapshot in our passage today is this one word, devotion. This sacrificial, life-encompassing, even costly devotion that when looked upon by a watching world, they are admired and they see it as attractive, or maybe even just plain crazy. And I believe it's the same devotion that should define the church today. So to kind of unpack that here, I want to share the three practices the church was and should be devoted to. The three practices are, they were devoted to the word. Number two, they were devoted to one another. And number three, they were devoted to being witnesses. Let's go right in here. Verse 42, they were devoted to the word together. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now you notice here, it doesn't say Bible or scripture here. What we have to remember is that during this time, all the teachings of Jesus would have been written down, would not have been written down physically like we have today, but it would be actually taught and passed on more orally by the disciples or the apostles. And like when we saw Peter's sermon last week, their teaching would be based on their interpretation of the scripture. Luke 24, 44 to 45 reminds us that when Jesus, before Jesus left, he said to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I'm still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So the apostles would be teaching everything that Jesus taught them and also was in line with what we call the Old Testament. And to back up their authority of their words, verse 44 says this. It says, or verse 43 says this. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The apostles' authority came through their spirit-empowered word, but it also came through their spirit-empowered wonders and signs to prove their apostleship and authority that came from Jesus. So, 
like an infant craving milk from their mother, these 3,000 new followers were hungry for that authoritative word. They wanted to know more about who this Jesus was. They wanted to hear about what Jesus cared about, what he taught about. They wanted to know how Jesus would engage culture, society, politics, and more. They wanted to live the way Jesus lived, how he gave, how he served, and how he loved others. In other words, they wanted the word of God to influence every single area of their lives. So they were devoted to it. But how about us? You know, during this season of Lent, which is the the 40 days uh, until Easter, the church has practiced giving up or fasting good things so that you could pursue, excuse me, so they can pursue the ultimate thing, which is Jesus, which I know some of you have been doing during this season of Lent. But for me, I committed to giving up uh, social media, and sports for Lent. Now, it's, it might be kind of easy, but it's really hard for me. Um, and after about a, a, a week and a half, I, I realized that it's quite difficult to do that for me. Why? Because as throughout the weeks have been going on, I've been opening up my phone or my browser, and I'm, I'm clicking on those apps, but then I'm realizing that I'm not supposed to be looking at those apps. It's like this naturally kind of defaulted posture that I have that whatever I'm bored, that I just kind of click on this to distract myself, and especially during this pandemic season. Why? It's because I love to be distracted. I, I love to be entertained. And if you've watched the documentary, The Social Dilemma, social media and, and, and apps, they, they're actually programmed to feed you notifications to give you the right content so that you will actually consume more than you originally intended to. And that's why in this book uh, that the Barnard Research Group did called Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon, they report that even using conservative data that the typical young person uh, consumes nearly 20 times more hours per year using screen-driven media than taking in spiritual content. And for the typical young churchgoer, the ratio is still more than 10 times as much cultural content as spiritual intake. And then they also comment this. They say, deep spiritual longings, which ought to be lovingly tended and skillfully cultivated, are choked to death by binge television, immersive gaming, and social media scrolling. As we will say many times in the coming pages, technology and the lighted rectangles we gaze at all the time aren't bad in and of themselves, but if we are not vigilant and intentional, digital Babylon glitzes and blitzes our days so completely that we never get around to pursuing the deeper things of life. I honestly believe the reason many of us, and myself included, do not devote ourselves to the word is because we have so many distractions that are consuming our time whether it's Netflix or Instagram or apps, whatever things on our phone that's clamoring for our attention. And as a result, Scripture doesn't become our main source of nourishment or influence, but it becomes just like one of the many apps that we have on our phones. Now, again, I'm not saying, again, like the article said, that phones are bad and we should take our phones and smash them against the wall. I'm not saying that at all. But that we need to evaluate just how much time 
and energy and focus are we devoting to the Word of God? Just some quick tips here. I strongly encourage not to read the Bible on your phones. Grab a physical Bible. They still make those. (laughs) If you don't have one, the church, I believe, has them, and we'll give you one. Because it's so tempting to just hear that notification or check your email on your phones. Put every buzzing thing in a different room when you devote yourself to the Word. Another one is schedule time in the Word. I know we have busy schedules. Schedule times, and when something comes up, say you have a meeting. And then I know many of us are doing small groups in Zoom um, capacities, and we're doing Bible studies in virtual rooms. And I would say when you're in a small group Bible study, please close all windows and all things so you can devote time in the Word together. You know, I can just keep on going with this, but we have to be vigilant on eliminating our distractions so that we can be devoted to the word. Let's keep going on. Practice number two. The early church, they were also devoted to one another. As we read in verse 22, um, it continues on that they were devoted to the fellowship now, this word fellowship here is this Greek word, koinonia, which literally means this, it's to be united in an intimate relationship or partnership. And it's not just a social or personal relationship, it's this deeper spiritual oneness. And this koinonia community, it's marked by these two things they did together often. It's the breaking of bread, number one, which most commentators suggest that it probably meant communion, the Lord's Supper here that it would be an actual fellowship meal where they would eat together and they would also worship Jesus together. And the second thing they did was they also devoted themselves to daily prayer. Notice these aren't just individual prayer times, but it's prayers done in community and in relationships. So I'm, I'm sure that stories are being shared, that hardships are being prayed over, that relationships are built, and even laughter and celebration is happening when they're praying. It's this beautiful picture of what the church community can look like. Now, I'm sure that many of us can get behind this type of community. I'm sure many of us came to a church to find this kind of community. But it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. And in verse 44 to 45, we read this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Again, this Kononia language. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I believe this is probably the most often looked over part of this passage. Because when we read this, our hands get a little bit sweaty here. Because we're asking, what does it mean to give or to have all things in common? What does it mean to sell our possessions? Well, it probably doesn't mean that they all sold everything here. They still met in homes. They still had meals. But what it does tell us about this koinonia fellowship is that when we devote ourselves to one another, it will cost us. It will cost us. Let me explain it this way here. You know, some of us see community like we do our TVs. You just picture a TV, and the most important part of the TV is the remote control where you can literally tell what the TV to do and what you want to see. 
You can choose an action movie, a documentary, a rom-com, sports, HDTV, or reruns of The Office. All it takes is one click. You can control the volume, you can pause it, watch it again later at 1.5 speed, captions or no captions, and then turn it off whenever you want to. You can get the human interaction or the entertainment with, more, with none of the pesky intimacy or discomfort of actually having to meet someone. And if we were honest with ourselves, there is this temptation where we'd rather just be consumers of community and not givers of community. Because before we commit to a community or maybe join a church or a small group, what tends to be one of the first questions we ask? Is this what I am looking for? Does this group of people make me feel welcomed and treat me well? Can I get anything out of this group emotionally, socially, spiritually? Will this cost me my time and resources? And will the gains outweigh the cost? Does this group make me feel awkward or uncomfortable? Or will this group ever tell me what to do or what not to do? Now, understandably, I'm not saying we should just blindly commit to community. But what I'm saying is that there's a growing tendency to treat communities more like our Netflix account than it is really what the church did in the book of Acts. Instead of seeing community like our TVs, what if we saw our communities like dining tables instead? Dining tables, if some of you have one, they all come in different sizes. They fit a different amount of people, different colors, different years of usage. You can't observe them from afar, but you have to pull up a seat, listen, talk, and eat. It's a place where there are strangers, where there are friends, neighbors, family members, coworkers, and people from all walks of your life. And at a dinner table, you, you can't control what happens. Just ask our parents in this room. Most, most of the food that's on the table does not end up in the kids' mouths. You just can't control it. There are conversations that happen. It's sometimes funny, sometimes serious, sometimes really sad. And the more you open up your dining table, it will not only cost you your resources and time, but it will also cost you your own conveniences and your comforts. Because what we see in the early church is this koinonia community that doesn't ask the question, is this what I am looking for? Instead, they are asking, what or how can I love and also be loved? They're asking, where can I listen with and be with and even cry with those who are struggling together? Where can I celebrate life's joys or support those who are going through hardships during a particular season? Where can I give my talents, my resources, my precious time to others? Where can I also be kept accountable for my own sins and shortfallings while also lovingly calling out the sins and shortfallings of others? And I want to make a small kind of tangent note here. When we devote ourselves to one another, we are also giving permission for our Christian community that loves us to speak into areas of our lives that may not be in accordance with God's word. In the past few years, we've sadly seen many Christian leaders manipulate their power in unchecked sin because one of the primary reasons is that they did not have true accountability. There was no space for others to call out their sins and to be listened to and heard. Church, please don't miss this in this text. Devoting ourselves 
to one another requires giving our lives for one another. And like our dining tables, it's going to be messy. It's going to be unpredictable. It might be a little bit uncomfortable as well, but it, what it means is that it could be so beautiful. God makes messy things beautiful. And we see that throughout all of Scripture. And if you want that true biblical community, I pray that we would devote ourselves to one another. And as Rafe just mentioned, one of those steps is to be in a small group, is to, is to be connected, to not be afraid, to be vulnerable, to be authentic. Because when you do it, I promise it will be hard, but it will be beautiful. Okay? Be beautiful, church. But what's amazing here in our text is that it doesn't stop there. Luke mentions one more thing the early church does, which is their third practice. The church, they were devoted to being witnesses. Let's go to verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. In verse 46, you don't see it in our English translations, but the powerful word devoted, it's in there again, in the original language. The H, or HCSB translated better. You can see it on the screen. It says, every day they, were devo- they devoted themselves to meet together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude. And when Luke talks about these early believers meeting at the temple together, yeah, it probably means they're going to like a Sunday gathering like we do here, but it's a little bit more than that. They, these were men and women who were going to the temple courts together. Now, if you see the picture behind me, you'll notice that this vast space amongst the inner temple, this would be where all the public activities of the Jewish people would be doing. And if we go back to the gospel accounts, This is where Jesus threw out the money changers, so those most likely businesses, buyers and sellers there. This is where Jesus healed the sick, so beggars and and the poor came there because everyone would congregate there. This is also where Jesus would frequently teach to large crowds. So likewise, the early church would make it a habit of going into the public sphere of society together and bear witness about Jesus Christ, their Lord, there. And they would proclaim the gospel to the lost and potentially even bring them back home to have meals together. Because as we see in verse 47, they would gain the favor of all people. And here is the ultimate fulfillment of the mission. The Lord, not the Christians, not the church, not the apostles, the Lord added to their number daily as more and people were added to the household of faith. The true mark of a devoted Koinonia fellowship was taking the good news of the gospel in word and deed to the lost. Church, where are your temple courts? Is it in our offices, our workplaces? Is it in our schools, in parks? Is it in our gyms, our our blocks, our neighborhoods, or maybe even in a Zoom meeting? Now, I recognize that this is probably the most intimidating of the three practices. Many of us find things like evangelism or outreach or having spiritual conversations as really difficult, and we kind of just shun ourselves away from them. 
But what you have to see in our text is that this responsibility of evangelism, of outreach, of proclaiming the gospel to the lost is not given to an individual. It's given to the community. In an article that I read recently, it's called Evangelism is Not a Solo Sport. The writer argues that evangelism is not just about personality or gifting, though that's important, but it's about partnership. He says, in a culture that's increasingly isolated and disconnected, communal evangelism has unprecedented potential to draw in the individual. Partnerships, not personality, produce effectiveness in the long run. And he kind of like maps out these team-based evangelism steps. There is those who initiate well, those who build relationship with those who do not know Jesus in the community. There are those who cultivate relationships well, which are those who are in the community caring, serving, welcoming them in their homes. And then there are those who are good at proclaiming, which is sharing the gospel and also having difficult, maybe theological conversations with those who are trying to understand what this is. Now, it doesn't mean that we are exempt from sharing the gospel to our neighbors. But what it does mean is that when we do it together, God does amazing work. So the early church, they faithfully witnessed together in the public square. But again, I want to remind us that it's not them that, that bring in those added to the faith. It is the Lord that does it alone through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not about how many people you can save or we can save. It's about how many people God can save through our witness. Now, as I begin to wrap up, you know, I want to go back to the first question that I asked you. If others looked into your life, what would they see you devoted to? Now, ideally, we would all love to say that it was these three things. But if you're honest, and I'll be honest, many of us are not devoted to these practices. Some of us are distracted. Some of us are devoted to good practices like our work, our health, our families. But those devotions outshine what devotion God calls us to. Or some of us feel discouraged because we've tried to be devoted to these things. We've tried to be devoted to scripture or tried to be in community, but we've been hurt or we've felt neglected or we've tried to share our faith, but no one has come to faith. And I'll be the first one to say that this season, it has been difficult. Whether it's planting a church in this pandemic or trying to figure out how to, to figure out the challenges of childcare with two working parents or trying to find intimate friendships amidst uh, social distancing. And those are just my things that I'm wrestling with. It's hard to remain devoted. There is something in each of us that remains broken. Our hearts are hardwired to be our own kings and queens. Sin reigns in us. So then how do we remain devoted to these practices that we see the early church committing to? Is it simply to try harder? No. We can only remain devoted if we turn our eyes to Jesus. Because Jesus has always, is always, and will always remain devoted to you. From the beginning of creation to when he stepped down from earth, from heaven to earth, Jesus was devoted to you. 
When he healed the sick, taught the lost, and loved broken people, Jesus was devoted to you. When he would take up his own life on the cross to die a death that we deserved, Jesus was devoted to you. And his devotion would not end on that cross, church. No, he would conquer sin and death so that he would give new life to us who believe in him. He would give his life for undevoted people like us. And even now, church, he remains devoted to us through the ever-present Holy Spirit that dwells in us who believe in him never leaving us, never forsaking us. And he promises that nothing, neither death nor anything in this world can separate us from his love, from his devotion to us. Church, the gospel reminds us that sin will never allow us to be devoted people every day and every moment of our lives. So instead of relying upon our own devotion, our efforts, we must rely on Christ's devotion. And as Ephesians 2.8 reminds us, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So what Jesus is calling us to do is, yes, be devoted to these things. But instead of relying on yourself, rely on me. That is what Jesus is telling us. And true growth, true gospel fruit, true gospel movement will happen because he promises it. It will happen through his spirit that is in us. It is the spirit that turns your hearts away from your own agendas and distractions so that you can be devoted to the word. It is the spirit that turns you away from becoming selfish consumers of community to sacrificial givers that devote yourself to one another. And it is the spirit that turns you away from the fear and timidity of sharing your faith to be a community of boldness that devotes to being witnesses together. Amen, church?